0: But we do have pictures.
1: So. If you don't mind, I'll... there
0: you go. All right. Your Thanks, right. sorry Going? Yep. All right. What do you want me to do? Oh, I just hit the hold button. I think. No, nope, I'm
2: good. Say hold. It, okay. Uh, so I'm not going to kill it if gone. I bump something. No, All right.
0: And just leave it on the table yep. here.
1: Just leave it there. All right. Mm-hmm. Have you read G. Myers on the tutors? No. Interesting.
0: Recent uh, recent book on the monarchs.
1: I was just curious what your no. thoughts on
0: it. No, sorry.
1: I've become a bit of a J.G. Meyer thing.
0: Okay, I'll have to look him up. Uh,
1: first thing that I read was on x World War One.
0: Okay. And then he has a book on the Tudors, and he has a book on the Forges. Okay. not have COVID. I was just tested a few days ago, <clears throat> but I do have a lingering cough from a cold a yeah, couple of weeks ago, but now you have to be really sensitive about coughing or everybody thinks you have yeah, COVID. It's I, like,
2: but, I use those right. all the time before I preach. I find them very helpful, even if I'm not,
1: huh? not really having a sore
2: throat or anything.
0: <laughs> just the menthol. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I, I don't use what was Spurgeon's uh, chili pepper chili or something. Pepper. Yeah, yeah. I don't do that one. Yep. He mixed up some concoction had chili peppers and everything else in it. He said you should tan your vocal cords like you can tan leather.
0: Yeah, it worked for him, but I think it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I'd be like, oh my, acid or something. <laughs> 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 yeah, not good.
2: Yeah. <laughs> We're not Spurs. Hello. Not sure. Hey, how you doing,
0: sir? Good. <clears throat> yeah, notes right there.
2: Are you visiting? I'm in uh, church history now. Oh, church history too. Uh, Where? Uh, Southern.
0: Oh, I graduated from Southern. Got my PhD there in church history under Tom Nettles. I don't think he's there now. Yeah, Greg Wills was there, and I don't think he's there anymore either. Actually, most David uh, Wright, Um, Sean Wright, Sean Wright. Do you recognize that name?
2: Not, but I'm a master's guy. So yeah. Know. Know. When, they, when they say PhD, I'm like, pshh. <laughs> 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 right.
0: So who teaches church history for the MDiv program or whatever? Uh, Wisely is uh, two. Okay. And I went to my first professor. I think I remember his was on the He was memorable, huh? <laughs> <to think>. uh, <laughs> he, he was sorry. very memorable. <laughs> 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 but I did like it. But, uh, even though
2: uh, <sighs> the book that uh, I'm um, they used that book, I don't know, by uh,
0: Gonzales. Yeah, yeah, we actually use that here, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't agree with them all at us. Okay. Real? But
0: Church History 1.
2: Is it Stephen O.
0: Presley. Oh, man. See, I, I haven't been there in uh, 12 years now, and everybody's changed, it seems like. Al Moeller's still there, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, a whole bunch of guys. Randy Stimson, uh, Stinson, uh, went out what? He preached that day. Okay. down.
2: And then he was gone. And then uh, like that next year, and, um, Greenway.
0: And Am Greenway took a bunch of people yeah. out to southwestern, yep.
2: southwestern.
0: Yeah, I was very surprised when Greg Wills. He was a uh, he was a reader of my dissertation. He wasn't my advisor, but he was a reader, and he was always very aggressive. So he's very memorable. And I had a bunch of classes with him. He, I think he taught uh, this. Uh, he wrote the history of the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the guy. Um, so he was there, but when he went out to Southwestern, I was very surprised. A little disappointed. <laughs> I was, yeah, because I took oh. it with, when I took that
2: class, he had just left.
0: Okay. So yeah, he was, a, he was a good guy. guy. I take it as a, Yeah, I did take it as a, a J-term. Okay. He had a- mm-hmm. You guys are always faithful and showing up here. Sorry, we disappointed you last year. Oh,
2: we were kind of no conference.
0: Year. Yeah, yeah. It was going to be on counseling, um, but
2: just I, I told Dave, I said, I know it sounds kind of gay, but I miss seeing you and hearing you for the last two years. <laughs> there you go. Well, A lot of stuff was closed last year. Yep. A oh, yep. lot closed this year. Hearing yep. You.
0: Yeah, the seminary's back to normal, basically. Um, the school year, though.
1: Michigan seems to be kind of back to normal.
0: Yeah, the kids still all have to wear masks here I saw in the that school.
2: guys, so I wondered if you were under a mask mandate for school. Yeah, still for. The in Illinois under down to two years old. Wow. The whole state. Wow. Depending upon what school district you're in.
0: Hmm. Last, have to wear masks. last year was terrible. They They couldn't have more than one class in the hallway. They pretty much just used the hallways to get to the bathroom. They had to eat lunch in the room, no outside recess, none of that. It's all in your room. They had to wear masks. They had plexiglass up between any shared tables. They'd put plexiglass between the kids. And And that
2: was all statement, right? Yeah,
0: most of it was, I think. Um, And they were trying to follow the layer of the law. Um,
2: Meanwhile, meanwhile they said less young people died last year of COVID than flu in a
1: normal
2: year. Yeah, yeah, that's... You know, I'm pretty hard-pressed to argue against the social
1: distancing. Right. The easiest way not to catch something Yeah. yeah. Basically oh. basically to impose a quarantine. So. Yeah, and handshaking and stuff. I'm yeah. sure that does right. lead to
0: sharing of germs. And, you know, I live in yeah. a
1: red state, so we just never quite got that crazy.
0: Uh, Ohio? Nebraska. 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 Yeah. All right. Have we talked about this before? I have a brother-in-law of pastors in Grand Island. Do
1: you?
0: Yeah, John Hayes.
1: What church?
0: Uh, Grace Baptist Church in Grand Island. I don't really know. It's a little. Know. It's very small. do really you know anybody. Okay. He's got that. They might have fifty people on a good Sunday. Is my guess. It's a pretty. Well, that's small. really good because you know, okay. Grand
1: Island is our third largest town.
0: Which is crazy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, forty thousand people, maybe yep.
1: fifty. It's our third largest town. Yeah. But I've been in Nebraska almost forty years, and Grand Island has never had much of a yeah. even close to fundamental work.
0: That church has been there. Um, so it's a garb church. Um, uh, he's a grad of Faith in Iowa. Uh, John is. John Hayes. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's heard along. A, I, I think a, he's been there maybe 30 years before I was married. Before I married his wife's sister.
2: <laughs> um,
1: I know there's a very large contemporary contemporary Korean
0: church there. Okay. No, this church isn't contemporary at all. Yeah. They've got a piano, but you know, that's extent of it. I think yeah. they struggle to have a piano player sometimes.
1: Yeah. Actually,
0: he just came down with COVID, I think. Um, he and his wife and some of his kids, and they're, I don't know what they're going to do this Sunday. Yeah. So we, well, so back. you drive out here from Nebraska.
1: Pardon?
0: You drive out here from Nebraska well, most years. Well,
1: usually I fly, but this year, this year actually, I drove it for personal reasons. This is this is where we're from originally, mm. Detroit area. So. My wife's flying in tomorrow night, and we were supposed to have a wedding that got canceled, so we're just having a family gathering.
0: This okay. Week. Good. <clears throat> wedding that got canceled—that doesn't sound good.
1: No, it doesn't sound good. Mm. I, don't, I don't. I really don't know any more than that. Just, <laughs> we got the wedding invite, and then we got the we postponed the wedding emails. So. All right. So this year, yes, I did drive. I don't miss not getting in an airplane.
0: Yes, yes. I need to fly here in November. I'm just hoping things don't get worse or, you know, they, know. all of a sudden you got to be tested right before you, you know, oh, it's within it's a crazy. week or two. Yeah, I
2: don't, know. I don't
0: know. Though it seems like, if anything, they're backing down. They backed down on what the Southwest pilots. They were going to lay off a bunch of them. It seems like they backed uh-huh. up.
1: So, so. I got it. we got a guy in our church. He retired. He's from near Grand Island. And he retired and moved back out there. His wife's a nurse in Grand Ivy. And they come out with a kid vaccinated or resigned. Yeah. And then her boss called her in because she wasn't going yep. to. well, we're down 30% nurses before the MAC mandate, and now we're going to be down another 25%.
0: Who thinks that's a good idea? So we
1: have permission to waive... Yeah. The mandate
0: requirement. Yeah, they've got to do that. They've got. Yeah, I have a sister-in-law who's a nurse up in Minnesota, and she's fine with being vaccinated, but she's being told she has to be vaccinated now as a, yeah. a condition of employment, and she doesn't want to do it for for that reason. Which, good or bad, whatever, it's not my choice. But mm. that she, I don't know what she's going to do. She's pregnant now with her eighth kid. I think
1: my, my son works for the government, and he's, he didn't want to get vaccinated. Yeah. I was just telling him, because yeah. his, his boss said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I, I will probably get vaccinated, yeah. but not until the order
0: comes down. Or the <laughs> and he said, there you the go. order comes down, I'll yep. Yep. Now, A good number of the seminary faculty had it late spring, early summer. So I think, yeah, I think most of us are probably immune for that reason. Actually, the one who didn't was the first one who got vaccinated. Dr. Compton was the one who avoided, which is probably good, um, all things considered. He managed to avoid it, but he was the first one to.
1: And we have a guy in our church, a, a retired or a Vietnam vet. He was one of the first to get vaccinated, and he spent 12 days in the hospital with COVID. Wow. How long after? Oh, oh he got vaccinated yes, last January, and he was in the hospital in September, so eight or nine months later. And they were this close to putting them on a ventilator. He said that well, first couple of
0: days I was right, not my will. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I now know a couple of guys near my age that have either been hospitalized or have died. It's a little, you know, alarming, a little yeah. concerning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not, when it's, bad, it's, it's bad. fairly young, fairly yeah. healthy people. But I
1: don't know, does the vaccination really protect
0: you? Well, It seems like it helps, but it, yeah obviously it's not the cure-all but.
2: you know that story of Spurgeon with that cholera right? up I'm not sure yeah the cholera was raging he was a young man I just hit London not long after that the yeah. was raging people dying like flies he walked by a Christian shopkeeper's shop and Psalm 90 was up on the window and Spurgeon was somewhat fearfully read that he said God used that to give me the faith to keep visiting people hmm. he said he never got it huh.
0: that's great
2: that killed quite a few people which is just dirty water that's just polluted polluted water I think and hmm. running the
0: sewage right in the alright let's go ahead and get started if you did not pick up notes there are some on the back chair there did everyone get notes the handout All right, so we're talking about the Puritans and what they can teach us about soul care. Thank you, Corey. I do just want to start with a caveat and say I don't think that the Puritans are the answer to everything. So it's not like, let's go back to the good old days, look at the Puritans, and that's going to be like the solution for Christian counseling, and this is the way we should be doing exactly how they were doing it. That's not what I'm saying. Um, But like I think it was C.S. Lewis reminded us that people who live in different ages have different blind spots and different strengths, and I think looking back at the Puritans, they don't tend to have the same weaknesses that we have. And they tend to be stronger in some areas that I think we tend to be weak in um, in the 21st century. So let's start. There are handouts on the chairs you come in there, guys. I'm largely going to read through the uh, handout and make comments along the way, uh, but it's fairly fairly full outline. The modern day biblical counseling movement is of fairly recent origin. For example, J. Adams' first book on counseling, Competent to Counsel, was just published in 1970, not that long ago. Uh, Adams actually coined the term neuthetic counseling in the late 60s, and through that book he kind of introduced the term newthetic counseling to a lot of pastors and other readers. Most of the major biblical counseling organizations are still less than 60 years old, with CCEF uh, being founded in 1968, ACBC. Uh, Beginning in 1976, it was originally called uh, Nank. Uh, Perhaps some of you are more familiar with that. The name changed about eight years ago now. So, well, the first issue of the Journal of Biblical Counseling rolled off the presses in 1977. So the biblical counseling movement, at least uh, the one that we're probably most familiar with, is still only maybe 50 or so years old. Not that old. It's still fairly young. However, believers were using the Bible to help other believers long before J. Adams came on the scene. Uh, you can see there we just uh, lost him last fall. He uh, passed away last fall. Um was a help to many people. Believers have been using Scripture for, uh, to help others for many centuries. During the mid to late 1500s, there arose a group of people known as the Puritans who placed a great deal of emphasis on diagnosing spiritual difficulties and using the Bible to help fellow believers overcome sin problems. These Puritans called this kind of ministry soul care, and spoke about this ministry as the cure of souls. They saw themselves as physicians of the soul, things like that. So who were these Puritans? Uh, What did they believe, and how might they be helpful to us in the 21st century? That's basically the outline uh, of the material we're going to be looking at, the questions I'm trying to answer. So let's start by asking, who were the Puritans? The short answer is that the Puritans were God-fearing, reform-minded Anglicans. That is, they were not Lutherans, they were not Anabaptists, they certainly weren't Uh, Roman Catholics or Arminians, uh, but they were people in the Church of England um, who wanted to reform the Church. They were Anglicans who had been impacted, some might say infected, by reformed theology and who wanted to see the Church of England purged of the vestiges of Roman Catholicism and reshaped in keeping with the Scriptures. They wanted to see the Church of England become more biblical, basically. And for them, them, that meant move in the direction of reformed theology, reformed polity, etc., page two there. The Puritan movement began in England around the year 1560. Uh, I mentioned to the a couple of the guys in the front row here before we started that um, in church history we don't use crayons, but we do have pictures. So uh, I like to have uh, <laughs> pictures. And uh, you can see there a graphical depiction of the various monarchs of England during the 1500s. Henry VIII was king during the Refor- what's usually considered the Reformation period or where the various branches of the Reformation were being started. And he was actually be uh, father to all three of those uh, who followed him: Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth. Though they were only half siblings in each case. In 1534, Henry and British Parliament created the Church of England as an institution outside the control of Rome. At this point, the Reformation in England was largely political. Basically, Henry really wanted to have a male heir. He really wanted to have a son to come after him, sit on the throne when he died, kind of preserve his legacy. And his wife, his first wife at least, was not providing him with a son. She would have a daughter, but uh, no sons. And so he wanted to divorce her, but the Catholic Church wouldn't allow them to divorce. I mean, he's not like he's a private figure. He's rather prominent as the King of England. And so he's not able to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, in order to marry another woman. Here He already had his second wife picked out. Um, and so he basically takes the Church of England out from underneath the authority structure of Rome. And through the act of supremacy, they create the Church of England with the monarch himself, Henry, as head of the church. They basically keep most of the structure of the Anglican church in place, but he's now essentially the English pope. For all practical purposes, he's at the top of the church, though functionally the Archbishop of Canterbury would do more of the day-to-day administration of the church. Edward VI, when Henry died, he was succeeded by his only son, Edward. Uh, Edward was actually born to Henry's third wife, uh, Jane Seymour but he was a boy, so he got to go in before his sisters, uh, basically. He was just nine years old when he became king. Crazy, king of England, nine years old. By his early teens, he was under the tutelage of some solid reformed theologians. He was interested in pursuing a theological reformation in England. He basically seems to have been a fairly uh, good king for a teenager. Probably a lot of us were not all that um, studious and uh, probably weren't reading theology in our early teens. Uh, Xboxes, whatever, you know, whatever teens are uh, wrapped up in nowadays. But um, Edward seems to have at least favored a theological reformation. He had good, godly people influencing him in a healthy direction generally. Unfortunately, he was sickly and died at the age of 15. And so his eldest sister came to the throne at that point, Mary. Mary was the daughter of Henry's first wife, Catherine, uh, whom Henry had divorced, contrary to the Pope's will. Mary essentially turned back the clock, she returned to England to Roman Catholicism, and she deposed, persecuted, and eventually executed a number of Protestant pastors during her short reign. Hence, her nickname is what? Yeah, this is Blay Mary. Many English Protestant leaders fled to the continent of Europe during Mary's reign, where they spent several years in places like Geneva, other bastions of Reformed thought, Zurich, Strasbourg, etc. Uh, They basically fled pastors uh, within the Anglican church, those who were more reform-minded. As the church goes back to Roman Catholicism, they leave rather than being put to death or imprisoned, Um, and they go to places like Geneva where uh, Calvin was still living in the 50s, uh, dies in 64, and uh, study under people like Calvin Beza, um, Heinrich Bollinger in Zurich, places like that. Mary thought that she was going to have a child um, who would succeed her on the throne. It turned out to be stomach cancer or something similar, and so she came to an early end as well, died at age 42. And so her sister, Elizabeth, came to the throne. Following the death of Mary, her younger sister, Elizabeth, comes to the throne. She was shrewd, competent. More importantly, her reign would last for about 45 years. As a daughter of Anne Boleyn, uh, Henry's second wife, Henry had uh, six different wives, three of which were named Catherine. This is probably kind of confusing. You can just kind of picture Catherine. Oh, yes, Catherine. You know, like, uh, first, fifth, and sixth wives were all named Catherine. Uh, Anyway, uh, she was the daughter of Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. Her legitimacy, though, was threatened by Roman Catholic churchmen and politicians because if Henry's first marriage was not properly, was not annulled correctly, then her mother um, was not really married to the King of England, and so she's not rightfully in the, the lineage to be Um, queen. Elizabeth rejected Roman Catholicism and under the renewed Act of Supremacy she once again removed the Church of England from the authority of Rome, established herself as the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. During Elizabeth's lengthy reign many Protestant pastors returned to England but upon returning they realized that the English Church under the so-called Elizabethan Settlement still fell uh, far short of the biblical model. The Elizabethan Settlement was basically A series of policies and acts, some legislation, some appointments. that were kind of a compromise between Roman Catholicism and Reformation thought. And as the Puritans had studied in places like Geneva, they came back and thought that the English Church was still too Catholic in flavor, um, in structure, its theology, etc. So, having seen solid Reformed theology and polity in action, they weren't content with the condition of the English Church. Many returning leaders felt that the English Church needed to be purified their opponents would end up calling such people Puritans. Uh, Much like the Anabaptists and others throughout history, they got their name from their opponents. Um, Frequently, groups, denominations eventually, or um, various groups in church history didn't pick their own name. Their opponents were like, oh, you want to purify the Church of England. They'd eventually adopt the name, but anyway, hence they got their name. Top of page three, the Puritan movement developed throughout the late 1500s and early 1600s into an increasingly theological movement. During the 1560s, after Elizabeth comes to the throne uh, while she's queen, the Puritans were focused initially on reforming the liturgy of the Anglican Church, especially moving the church away from the Book of Common Prayer, which laid out how they should perform various ceremonies in the service, things they should say, prayers to be offered, how to perform weddings and funerals and baby baptisms and all kinds of things. And they wanted to get away from that because it was still largely Catholic, or really smelled a lot of Catholicism. During the 70s, the Puritans were focused on reforming the polity of the Anglican Church. At this point, the Anglican Church still had the archbishops and bishops and priests and deacons that mimicked Roman Catholicism. Sometimes the same people actually stayed in these positions and changed convictions. Uh, Sometimes they were replaced, but the positions stayed the same. So the polity structure was episcopacy within the Anglican Church, And most of the Puritans at this point in England uh, favored Presbyterianism. Uh, They had seen that mirrored or uh, a model of that over in the continent, and most of them would favor Presbyterianism. Those, interestingly enough, who would come to New England would favor Congregationalism. So we'd have Congregational churches established, Massachusetts Bay, that area, 1630s and such. But at this point, beginning in the 1570s and on, they start to try to reform the polity of the Anglican church, Uh, obviously with some limited success. During the early 1600s though they really began focusing on the morality especially of the clergy members and the theology of the Anglican Church. Much like the Roman Catholic Church the Anglican Church had a real problem with immoral clerics. Now they actually did allow them to marry well at least Henry didn't but starting with Edward uh, Anglican priests and bishops and such were allowed to marry but there still was a lot of immorality among the clergy members and they wanted to root that out. As well uh, William Laud was Archbishop of Canterbury and was pushing the church in a more Arminian direction. Arminius would die in 1609, so this is really right about the same time. Uh, of course, he's just across the English Channel, Arminius. So they begin to try to reform the morality and the theology of the church in the 1600s. And most of the quotes, I'm going to include quite a few quotes here in the notes, most of them will come from the 1600s from English Puritans. So then, what did the Puritans believe? A lot could be said about Puritan theology. I mentioned a book to someone earlier today, uh, Joel Beakey, has a Puritan theology, I don't know, it's probably 700 pages long, Six, 700 pages long, uh, just talking about Puritan theology, and it's far from comprehensive still. Um, Puritans produced large tomes uh, sometimes, and wordy titles as well. But I'll focus on a few areas that are relevant for counseling. The Puritans had a high view of God. Through the century God's people, centuries God's people have embraced the truth of God's providential control of the world he made. Writing near the end of the second century, Irenaeus declared, the maker of this universe exercises a providence over all things and arranges the affairs of our world. Two centuries later, in the wake of the barbarian invasions of Rome, Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer, wrote his City of God in large part to explain how a society that had, at least outwardly, turned from pagan religion to worship of the one true God could now be facing collapse. And of course, the collapse of the Roman Empire would take place, typically it's dated to the 400s, late 400s. As well, others like John Chrysostom, Theodorette, uh, Boethius, uh, medieval scholastics would explore the concept of God's sovereignty as providential control of the universe. During the 1500s, many of the Protestant reformers wrote extensively about God's providence. For example, uh, Zwingli wrote both a treatise on the subject of God's providence and a plague song, basically chronicling his own disease, uh, the plague, and uh, thought he got to the point where he thought he was going to die and then recovered. And he kind of chronicles that in this poem song uh, that he wrote about God's providence. As well, John Calvin devoted three chapters of his institutes to the topic of God's providence. While the Puritans had relatively little use for the medieval classics, no, no use, but relatively little, their worldview could rightly be described as Augustinian. More directly, they were influenced by Calvin and his successors, Bollinger, uh, Beza, etc. In his marrow of theology, Puritan theologian William Ames defined providence as that efficiency whereby God provides for existing creatures in all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. Ames further explained that this providence extends to all things, not only general but particular, is not determined by any cause, but determines all causes, and hence is both the universal and the particular cause of all things. In a longer Puritan discussion of providence, John Flavell uh, distinguished between comfortable providences and afflictive providences, and noted that both kinds of providence display the sovereignty of God over all things. As Flavel saw it, providence was the practical outworking of God's sovereignty in the world. Such providence may not always seem pleasant at the time. In fact, by the time Flavel wrote his book on providence, he lost a wife and a child in a difficult uh, birth. In fact, he would end up having four wives because three of them died on um, just signs of the times. Uh, We just don't know what this is like in our our own day, um, at least uh, the intensity of it, the numbers. Thomas Watson used a timely illustration to it. help explain such frowning providences. He said this, suppose you were in a smith shop and there you should see several uh, several sorts of tools, some crooked, some bowed, some hooked. Would you condemn all these for not because they do not look handsome? The smith makes use of them all for the doing of his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us to be very crooked and strange, yet they all carry on God's work. The Puritans consistently held that God's providence extends to every corner of the universe and includes every human action. They also held that this reality should result in submissive faith and fervent prayer, even when the believer is faced with what uh, Thomas Boston would call a crooked lot, a difficult life circumstance. In addition to having a high view of God, the Puritans also had a high view of sin, if we can put it that way. The Puritan concept of divine providence seems out of step with modern society, our own day, The Puritan view of sin was even more so. As reflected in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Puritans held that sin entails both universal guilt and universal corruption. Although humankind was created upright, all humans sinned in Adam and now stand guilty before their creator. Most Puritans held to the immediate imputation of Adam's sin and its entailing guilt, seeing Adam as a public person or as a representative head of humanity. It's often connected to the so-called covenant of works. Whether you like the terminology or not, The concept that uh, Adam was a public person was representative and the entire race fell in him. In addition to inheriting guilt, all persons also inherited a corrupt human nature. In the Westminster Confession, the Puritans explained it this way. By this sin, Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Reflecting on John 3, 6, that's the passage that says that which is more of the uh, flesh is flesh, Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin spoke about that abounding gulf, bottomless sea and lake of that corruption, sinfulness of nature within all our hearts. Due to Adam's sin, Goodwin Continued, we are guilty of a universal total sinful defilement spread over all faculties of soul and body, containing in it a privation or want of all good and an inclination to all evil. The Puritans did see a significant difference between the condition of the lost and that of the regenerate. Although they addressed the condition of the lost, they tended to write more about the condition of the believer who still wrestles with indwelling sin. This indwelling or original sin was viewed as the source of all actual sins that the believer commits in this life. Anthony Burgess, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly, English Puritan, described original sin as being like a forge or a shop from whence sparks of lust do continually rise. The heart of man is even like hell itself, whose fire of lust is unquenchable. So our Savior speaks of a hard heart, which is as an evil treasure. There is an evil treasure in every man's heart. You may see all sorts of wickedness come from it, old and new sins. And though he sin ever so much, yet he can sin more. This sea of corruption will never be dried up in this life. Paul also, in Romans 7, complained of the activity and vigor of this sin in him, that it is always seducing, yea, captivating of him, although sanctifying in part. Insomuch that although a man be loathsome in respect to his actual impieties, yet much more because of the original fountain of evil within him, the greatest part of our wickedness is in our natural inclination and propensity of sin. We are sinful even if we didn't sin. We were born sinful. For the Puritans, regeneration did not mean that one would be free from the struggle of sin, but did mean that a real change had taken place. According to Beeky and Jones, Romans 5 to 7 provide a kind of roadmap for the Puritan understanding of sin. As they put, if Romans 5 speaks about the imputation of guilt from Adam to his descendants and Romans 7 speaks of the presence of indwelling sin in the life of believers. Romans 6 proclaims the freedom from the dominion of sin that characterizes the lives of the godly. The Puritans believe that although the regenerate still live with the remnants of indwelling sin, they've been freed from both the condemnation of sin and the dominion of sin. As Burgess wrote, though original sin be in a regenerate person, yet it is not in its dominion there. It is in part abolished. In regeneration, original sin is more than suppressed. There is a quality of change, and so a diminishing of darkness of the mind by light, of evil in the will, by holiness. The Puritans realized that although sin had been decisively dealt with at the cross, and although indwelling sin was somewhat suppressed in the life of the regenerate, (coughs) believers still struggle with real sin issues, and such struggles lay at the heart of most cases of soul care. In addition to having a high view of God and a high view of sin they also obviously had a high view of the scriptures thankfully so the Puritans had a high view of the scriptures although far from perfect the Puritans were not distracted by the theories of secular psychologists Um, in fact they predated the rise of modern secular psychology by some 250 years or so Uh, Freud's writings would become popular in the 1890s particularly in Europe um, with his psychoanalysis B.F. Skinner with his behaviorism in the 1930s. Uh, Abraham Maslow uh, would push back against those two guys and be more optimistic, more humanistic, and would present his hierarchy of needs in the 1940s. And all of these things tend to impact our modern thinking, but Pyrton's lived before all this. It wasn't an issue. uh, The picture there, by the way, is a picture when Freud and Carl Jung uh, visited the U.S. This was the only time Freud would come to the U.S. He was Austrian by background. He would end up dying in London, but um, was Austrian and came to visit the U.S. And they were both invited over by Clark University to present lectures on psychoanalysis. And um, at the end of the series, they're both awarded honorary doctorates by the university. And this tour of the U.S., in the Northeast particularly, was up in Massachusetts. Uh, this little tour uh, really pushed Freud to the forefront in put him before Americans, and especially after the war, he's returned to Europe, and after the war, some wealthy Americans go over to Freud for help and Freud's associates. Uh, I read an article in Psychology Today talking about Freud's view of Americans. It was fascinating. Um, He didn't like them. He he liked American money, but he didn't like Americans. Um, But anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, Freud and Jung. So they were affected by these people. And given the, given the Puritan commitment to Scripture, it seems unlikely that the Puritans would have had any sympathy for secular or humanistic psychology if such had been proposed in their day. Um, we don't want to use the Puritans to answer questions that they never actually faced. But looking at their theology, it doesn't seem like they would have read Freud and, and thought, you know, this guy's basically, they would have seen Freud as like an expression of depravity, uh, probably himself. Um, I don't think they would have adopted his ideas. It's safe to say. For the Puritans, all of life was centered around the scriptures. As J.I. Packer noted, Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was the most precious possession that this world affords. Intense veneration for scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoid concern to know and to do all it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. The Puritans viewed the Bible as God's word and therefore as completely trustworthy. Although they lived a little too early to use the word inerrant, um, they certainly embraced the concept. Uh, The word inerrant was actually uh, coined in the uh, 1650s, but it was an astronomical term. Um, It was coined to describe fixed stars as opposed to wandering planets. So people spoke about the stars that didn't seem to move in the sky as inerrant, and it would be a century or more later before it would start coming into theology. But anyway, they embraced the idea of inerrancy, though they never used the word in a theological sense. In addition to seeing the Bible as accurate and worthy of complete trust, the Puritans believed that the Bible was essentially clear. That is, they held to the perspicuity of Scripture. The Scriptures were given by God to be understood and used. As such, they th- saw the Bible as relevant and sufficient for life and godliness. Ken Charles summarized the Puritan view of Scripture in Counseling this way. He said, as far as the English Puritans were concerned, every conceivable psychological need could be met and every imaginable psychological problem could be solved to a direct application of biblical truth. I think our um, discussion so far has kind of already hinted at how the Puritans could be helpful to us, but let's ask the question, why might the Puritans have something to offer us in the area of soul care? Well, first, the Puritans believe that God's people may struggle with sin. Although they were known for their high moral expectations, they realized that Christians often struggle with temptation and sin. For this reason, a number of Puritan authors produced case manuals, basically books cataloging kinds of temptation and sin. For example, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks cataloged 12 Means of Temptation, Eight Ways Satan Might Keep Souls from Performing Their Religious Duties. Uh, Thomas Brooks was an English Puritan pastor, pastored in London, actually preached to the House of Commons, uh, kind of the British equivalent of maybe the House of Representatives or something in America. Uh, influential pastor in London. Similarly, in this massive Christian directory, by massive I mean this thing is five volumes long, and each volume is more than five hundred pages long. Um, so, uh, this is a big, big, big document—five, uh, five volumes and uh, five hundred plus pages. So, twenty-five hundred to three thousand pages, maybe. Richard Baxter discussed how to deal with the various sins of the heart and sins of behavior that Christians may easily fall into. Uh, this is the guy who's best known probably for his book, uh, The Reformed Pastor, which uh, some of you have read. Some of you may be as students here uh, have read this or assigned it to others. He dealt with issues like wasting time in this book, uh, hypocrisy, and pride. He also addressed more obvious sins uh, like gluttony, drunkenness, and immorality. In addition to swearing and lying, he catalogued more than 30 other sins of the tongue. In subsequent volumes of his Christian Directory, uh, that's all from his first volume in his subsequent volumes, he talked about relationships in the home, in the church, and in society at large. Uh, Like Brooks, uh, Baxter would live through the uh, regicide of Charles I. Uh, The English subjects decided not to be subject to the King of England and beheaded him in 1649, and the English interregnum took place during the 1650s, and um, Baxter and others, um, many of the guys I'm quoting from here lived through that. They weren't living through a particularly stable time in English history. I mean, the killing of your own king is uh, rather—it's a rather good way to destabilize your country at this point. Page 7. The Puritans believe that God's people can also struggle with depression. Puritan authors used a variety of terms to describe something similar to depression. They wrote about spiritual melancholy. Spiritual desertions, or the idea, the feeling that God has deserted one. Uh, The dark night of the soul, and the soul's wintertime. The soul's wintertime doesn't work for me. I really like wintertime, so it just doesn't (laughs) work. But looking forward to snow and all that. But they were describing this experience that believers sometimes have that's not just I'm feeling a little blue. You know, I'm a little blue today, or I didn't sleep well, and I'm a little tired today, sluggish. No, they were describing something uh, that seemed to happen to a lot of people, a lot of Puritans, where they... Struggled with sin and felt guilty about it. Or they felt like God just was not answering them. God was not helping them in their sanctification, perhaps, um, and, and felt that God had deserted them in some way. In a tree, is tiled, titled, A Child of God Walking in Darkness. Goodwin argued that one who truly fears God and is obedient to him may be in a condition of darkness and have no light, and he may walk many days and years in that condition. Goodwin described this dark condition as discomfiture and sorrow, an inward distress of mind and conscience. Similarly, in the preface to his exposition of Romans 8, 28, Thomas Watson introduced his topic by confessing, there are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad, make them realize their sad condition. The other is to make the godly joyful. Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring, either because their inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts, are disturbed. Uh, Watson wrote this book uh, initially in um, 1663, just a year after he and about 2,000 other Puritan pastors, well, Puritan-minded pastors, had been ejected from the Church of England because they wouldn't conform to the Act of Uniformity. And so a bunch of reform-minded pastor, pastors were ejected from the Anglican Church right about this time. In a lengthy sermon titled The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith, Richard Baxter began by discussing the fact that excessive sorrow can swallow up a person. He discussed various causes of this disease of melancholy, which can afflict even believers. He noted that the root of such melancholy could be physical or demonic, or it could be related to difficult life circumstances, sin, doubt, or some combination of those. Elsewhere, he summarized some of these causes of melancholy or depression as... Most commonly, some temporal loss, suffering, grief, or worry that has affected them too deeply. Second, excessive fear of common, if nevertheless, dangerous situations. Anxiety about what could happen, dangers in this world. Third, too strenuous and unremitting intellectual work or thought. We could use some of that in uh, seminary. We have great students, but I don't know that any have actually faced uh, depression as a result of um, unremitting intellectual work or thought. Okay. All right, Drew has. But. Fifth, or fourth there, fears, too deep or too constant, and serious, passionate thoughts and cares about the danger of the soul. More seriously, we could use that in our day. We could use those who are concerned about their soul to the point that they're, they're really troubled. Fifth, the major dis- predispositions to it, indeed the principal causes, are frailness of faculty or reason, joined to strong emotions, most often found in women and those who otherwise come by them naturally. Six, in some cases, melancholy is ushered in by some heinous sin, the sight of which those guilty of it cannot bear once their consciences are finally awakened. In Baxter's day, that is the mid to late 1600s, some Puritans were experiencing delusive impressions of hearing voices, seeing bright lights, feeling touches, and being urged to blaspheme or commit suicide. Bad dreams were frequent. They were unable to stop despairing about everything or to concentrate on anything but their own hopelessness. They would cultivate solitariness and idleness. They would spend hours doing nothing. They would insist that others did not understand them, that they were not sick but only realistic about themselves. And they would prove perversely obstinate in the matter of taking medication. So Baxter's use of the term melancholy here is pretty broad. He seems to be talking about everything from depression or anxiety to like a bipolar disorder um, or psychosis or something where one is seeing things that aren't there. So it's a pretty broad term, but um, again, it's not just feeling blue, feeling I'm a little down, Um, it's rather rather serious. Baxter did not stop at cataloging the causes and manifestations of such melancholy. He went on to offer cures, or at least helps, to those who find themselves depressed. Hence, the uh, title of his sermon was The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow. It wasn't just like musings about melancholy, it was how to fix this. Similarly, Puritan pastor William Bridge delivered a series of 13 sermons on Psalm forty-two eleven. 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me, hoping God? Concerning that passage, Bridge observed that there is an inward peace and quietude of soul which the saints and people of God ordinarily are endued with. But he also knew it is possible that this peace may be interrupted and God's people may be much discouraged, cast down, and disquieted. Bridge believed that God never finally deserts his children, But as several of the psalm writers experienced, a believer can temporarily feel that he is far from God or spiritually deserted. Like Baxter, Bridge did not stop with the diagnosis. Most of the sermons in his series were focused on lifting up believers who are discouraged for one reason or another. And so the titles of his various sermons are lifting up those who, and he talks about different kind of discouragement, depression, sin struggle, things like that. The final sermon in his series was the cure of discouragements by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Most of the Puritans pointed to faith in Christ as kind of the the answer to sin and depression. So far from rejecting the possibility that Christians might struggle with sin and depression, the the Puritans didn't believe that. They they believed Christians could struggle with these issues. In fact, they addressed these issues in a lot of their books and sermons. They believed this was a real problem. They, They had seen this in their own ministry, that this was a real problem. For believers. But they believed that God's people could help each other overcome sin, depression, and other difficulties. In a sermon published in 1683, Richard Baxter asked those struggling with depression, do you know any minister or friend that is wiser than yourself? If you say no, how foolishly proud are you? If you say yea, then ask the minister or friend what he thinketh of your condition, and believe him, and be ruled by him, rather than by your infirm self. So the idea is, you're discouraged, you're struggling with sin, you're depressed. Go to a trusted pastor. Go to a godly friend and lay the case before them. Ask for their advice. And then trust them. Trust them. You're not thinking right. Trust someone who you trust is godly and uh, let them apply the scriptures to your life and, uh, and follow that. Likewise, Puritan pastors were expected to know their flock. Pastoral visitation was a common practice among the Puritans, and pastors used such visitation as a time to counsel the souls of distressed members. As theologian John Owen explained, it belongs to the pastors, on the account of their pastoral office, to be ready, willing, and able to comfort, relieve, and refresh those that are tempted, tossed, wearied with fears, and grounds of disconsolation in times of trial and desertion. The tongue of the learned is required in them, that they should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. The idea of a pastor who didn't engage in regular counseling or personal exhortation was unknown among the Puritans. Those who knew God's word were deemed responsible to apply it to the lives of their people. And they spoke about, in practice, godly conferences where the pastor would preach, and then after the sermon, they would get together and basically have on-the-spot counseling. They didn't hum just as I am and such, but they uh, we'd get together and they would talk about the sermon and about sin struggles uh, in these godly conferences. And the pastors regularly would visit people, um, not only people in the hospital, but people struggling with sin in their homes and ask them about the stay of their souls, hence the uh, idea of being a physician of the soul. All right, some concluding thoughts, some suggestions. First, uh, read the Puritans. If you haven't read any of the Puritans, Uh, you should look up some books. I'm sure we have some down in the bookstore. Uh, If not, Amazon's always on your phone or whatever. Uh, Read the Puritans. They were imperfect, uh, but no one knew that better than they did. And they were very helpful in many ways. Uh, They were people who revered God's word, who um, put a lot of effort into understanding the flesh, understanding the conscience, understanding the struggle with sin. And they tended to be strong where we are sometimes weak. So read the Puritans. Second, embrace the good in Puritan theology. We might disagree with them on all kinds of issues, ranging from infant baptism to eschatology. And most were postmillennialists. Uh, many of them were postmillennialists. So we might not agree with them. I'm not saying swallow up Puritan theology, and, and this, is, this is all great. Be- become a Presbyterian and, and start baptizing babies in your church. But uh, embrace the good in their theology. You don't have to agree with someone on every detail in order to learn from their theology. And they were strong in the areas of sin and temptation. Areas where I would say modern Christian writers tend to be pretty weak. If anything, popular preachers tend to downplay sin in our day. As much as we'd like to think it doesn't, that does trickle into into churches that are otherwise conservative. Uh, We don't preach about sin in the way that the Puritans tended to. And we probably don't confront people about their sins privately, unless they come to us with a problem, the way the Puritans tended to. Uh, the Puritans were very keen on going to another believer and uh, asking about the state of their soul. And uh, so the Puritans, both in theology and practice, have some things to uh, help us with. And then third they are learned from the Puritans' commitment to using scripture to help struggling believers. They believe the Bible is completely trustworthy. They trusted it, uh, they knew it, and they sought to apply that to their own lives and to the lives of fellow believers. So learn from the Puritans. All right, any questions or, or comments that came up as, as we were going through? Yes, Barry? i sure
2: some good books, uh, to look at, but yes. do you have any specific
1: ones that you'd like to start
0: John Owen on sin, uh, mortification of sin, uh, Richard Baxter's books on mm-hmm. depression, um, Thomas Brooks on temptation, um, his yeah, precious remedies against Satan's devices. So, all three of those are very relevant to counseling and understanding sin and, and the struggles. And depression, like a Puritan discussion of depression. Totally different era, different issues. It's not screen time or, you know, the kind of issues that happen uh, with us. Uh, the Puritans tended to be very in- introspective. Much of that good. Sometimes maybe a little overdone, but much of that good. And they often felt that they had fallen short as believers and really struggled with that. You know, how, and uh, certainly led to depression in some cases. Yeah,
2: Joe? Um, on page three, when you were reading the, um, the Puritan movement developed, Mm-hmm. and then um, you said during the 1560s, the Puritans yeah. were focused on reforming the liturgy of the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Especially moving a church away from the book of common prayer. Right. Is that to say that the Puritans like to pray shooting from the hip, what do we call it?
0: <laughs> um,
2: or do they just want to write their own book of that? In other words, we'll, we'll write our own prayers, and those are the acceptable prayers.
0: They described um, the book of common prayer as being culled from the... Dunghill of Popish practices, or something like that. They had a very picturesque way of describing the Book of Common Prayer. And they they felt like this was Roman Catholicism. We've just slapped the Anglican name on it. They really felt that it retained a lot of Roman Catholicism in the prayers that were said in the services. Um, They did pray extemporaneously, but they weren't opposed to uh, written out prayers, long prayers sometimes. Um, They didn't simply replace the Book of Common Prayer with their own. Though, Maybe you're thinking of this. Um, you know, sometimes people picture them as coming to uh, the new world seeking freedom, freedom of a religion. They're not really seeking freedom of a religion. They're seeking to be able to worship the way they think people should worship. Um, and so, they certainly would institute pretty strict laws, say in Massachusetts, including kicking out people like Roger Williams, uh, Baptist, sometime Baptist. Um, so it's not that they were seeking complete freedom and everybody can do what they want, but they wanted to move away from Roman Catholicism mm-hmm. and um, and move in a reform direction yeah can
2: I answer yeah so yeah
0: you? sure no it's did a they, limit of one question did, this uh, no.
2: Sorry did, did they um, subscribe to the idea of the city of God kind of idea that we'll build a village and we'll'll we'll We'll live and model
0: ourselves. Oh, right. yeah, particularly in New England. City Hill. They used the language of City on Hill, um, an errand in the wilderness. Uh, they felt that, you know, North America at that point is a wilderness. Errand in the wilderness, this will be the New Jerusalem, perhaps. Um, hence the post millennialism will be a light to the nations. Um, <clears throat> some had the idea of certainly evangelizing the Indians. Um, limited success with that, but um, but they certainly wanted to establish. Congregationalism, um, most of them would embrace Congregationalism in New England and think that this is the way churches should be. Those who came over were not initially separatists, except for the pilgrims, but functionally they would be. They were no longer really purifying the Church of England. There would never be an Anglican bishop in the New World. Um, Anglicanism would not really be established. Um, Some down in Virginia, but um, particularly in New England, Congregationalism was moving away from um, the Church of England rather quickly. Yeah, Pierce.
2: Yes, I, I mean, since you highlighted in here the intensity of their private ministry with people, yeah. you know, um, but they, they preached a lot too, so it wasn't a, one or the other.
0: Right. You know, yeah, they was, did both.
2: In comparison to their ministry and, and most many of ours today, what are we filling our time with instead of those things? I mean, do you get a sense of that in their life Was it just no technology, you know,
0: I don't. I don't know how they managed their time so well. It does seem that there was a tendency to um, to be devoted to the work in a different way. I'm not saying we're not now, but um, I mean they they didn't retire. They often didn't retire. They pastored right up until the end of their life. I'm not saying that that's what we need to do, but um, and I think they we assume a forty-hour work week, and I don't know that that was really an assumption for them. Um, and they weren't distracted. Netflix was not a thing, um, and Facebook and all that. Um, but took longer to wash your clothes and cook your food and do everything else. Uh, a lot of the practical necessities of life. So I don't how they pulled that off. I don't know, but they would talk about public ministry of the Word, private ministry of the Word, and both were important. It was like the two hands. And uh, uh, Private ministry of the Word, the pastor to the souls of people, not just visiting them in the hospital, but house to house. Actually, you probably know Jonathan a bit later, but Jonathan Edwards. Um, visitation. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot, Brandon. Um, yep. Jonathan Edwards. Starting visitation. Yeah, visitation
2: of people. There was this
1: people. Much part.
0: Okay. Uh,
2: his, this was a
1: point of contention. This is the 1700s, of course. But him and his parishioners had yeah, that he was not doing this. Okay. His attitude was, "I'm the best work I can do is in my study. If people need me, they'll come to me. Hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why he lost his pastorate, there there weren't those bonds forged bonds, yeah. between him and his, his people. But that wasn't common, yeah. as you know. Yeah. It wasn't common.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: It is crazy that Jonathan Edwards could be kicked out and be asked to leave his church. Uh, crazy. You know, we look back at practically the gold standard of uh, Christian theology in America, and uh, guy loses his church. Maybe um, yeah. because of a lack of
2: personal memory. In part, there are a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah, I don't know
0: there were, were a yeah. yeah, perhaps some uh, hasty de- or decisions made too quickly, public calling out of people.
2: Uh,
0: controversy. Yeah, yeah. Lots of yeah. 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 Any other questions? Last session here before supper, so didn't want to go long. <laughs> when they put me in this slot, I was like, uh, this is. People have been in sessions all day and they're getting hungry at the end of the day. Yes? Uh, yeah, they, uh, so, I mean,
2: generally in our day-to-day tend to limit um, lead churches of uh, theology. How did they tend to view their ongoing ministry as far as its effect on the church? they feel like it was being successful with the everyday church members, growing they stronger churches that they, they also have the same limits uh, on
0: I'm sorry. I'm not sure I understand.
1: How did how did they, did they feel that a lot of their reforms were at
2: least on the average Christian being successful, or the average church? Or did they kind of continually lament uh, how it
0: was going? They often lamented the state of their own soul as being far short of where they felt like they should be, um, as far as you know what they felt about. I'm not sure I can really you know get the Puritan explained what they believed about the uh, efficacy of their counseling efforts and their, their efforts to minister the word to people. To to it's that, kind of uh, broad. I'm not sure I can, I can make a general statement about what they thought. To yeah. on to that,
2: What kind of led to their demise or their disappearance?
0: Um, well, they were no longer purifying the Anglican church, certainly that, that becomes a thing. A In England, um, I mentioned the ejection of 1662 um, before that, there uh, many of them are arguing for Presbyterian polity within the Anglican Church. It's not generally happening, um, but they get kicked out, and so Presbyterianism, which of course is dominant to the north, up in Scotland, Presbyterianism is uh, very common, and so Presbyterianism kind of becomes a state, uh, uh, more of an established thing. As they're kicked, the, all these pastors are kicked out of the church, but they don't go become blacksmiths there's so many of them they're kicked out that effectively it's hard to enforce and they end up having presbyterian churches and in the new world it's going to be congregationalist churches so they you see presbyterianism and congregationalism replacing the puritan movement they're no longer trying to purify the church of england the anglican church in america is going to evolve into the episcopal church Um, after the revolutionary war no one wants to be no American wants to be under the um, wants the King of England to be head of their church, and but they retain the structure and it becomes the Episcopal Church in America uh, today. Though obviously there are Anglican churches outside of England as well, which is kind of uh, interesting, kind of weird. Like South Africa, a lot of Anglican oh, yeah. Church of England is strong in in South Africa. Of course, colonialism has something to do with that, where the English flag went at one point, but. Right. Any other? Yeah. True.
1: Obviously, uh, this will probably come out of further reading you recommended, but uh, as far as the way that they actually dealt with people like post- with depression and, and even what sounds like bipolar disorder and stuff yeah. like that, uh, was it was it mainly like praying with people and and reading the scriptures with them, or like how did they how did they approach that? Obviously, they're
2: dealing with things that. Yeah. somewhat of a great, understanding of
1: now.
0: Right. So okay. they certainly pointed people to trust in Christ. That They bl- thought that unbelief um, was the source of a lot of problems. Certainly not all of them. Uh, I mentioned at the end of one of those quotes that they had a problem with people taking their medication. In just, like, 1600s, people <laughs> not wanting to take their medication. I don't actually know what kind of medication they're thinking of there, but it's in the context of people are depressed and and don't want to, uh, and I'm not... Advise. I'm not a doctor, whatever, but um, it's interesting that they're talking about people who think that they're just being realistic. I'm not really, you know, I'm not being morose. This is just the way I really am. I really am this bad, but that sometimes led to, uh, like, just, I can do nothing. Okay, I can, like, so I don't do anything. And, and they isolated themselves and thought poorly of themselves, and they certainly didn't have the uh, self-esteem, you know, uh, pull yourself up and you're, you're really all you're great. Uh, Puritan Preaching didn't <laughs> didn't say you're great you know God loves you and you're wonderful and you know, because God looked through the corridors of time and, and loved you so much that he did this and that. Um, that's not the way Puritan Preaching tended to be um, it did tend to emphasize um, the difficulties that uh, the